dangerously close. This episode was brought to you by William Mitchell Audio. Deep in the frozen tundra of North America, no one can hear you scream. That is unless you go to williammitchellaudio.com. Not only will people be able to hear you scream, but William Mitchell Audio will bring professionalism and excellence to every single scream you perform. Go to williammitchellaudio.com. And I love that I have your uh, bio in the smallest possible font for this, which is already the hardest part for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm wearing glasses as well. There you go. Yeah. I haven't had my eyes checked in I, 20 years, probably less. Time I had my eyes checked. I probably right, could right. actually use some reading glasses. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Ignorance is bliss. Uh, <laughs> my guest today is Frank Wolf. Frank Wolf is a Canadian adventurer, writer, filmmaker, and environmentalist. He is known for books, feature magazine articles, online columns, and films that document the Canadian North. Nope, that's not what wilderness expeditions around the world with a focus on the Canadian North. I told you this fine print was not going to be good for me. His expeditions include being the first to canoe across Canada in one season and cycling 2,000 kilometers in winter on the Yukon River from Dawson to Nome. In 2020, he was named one of Canada's greatest 90 explorers of all time by Canadian Geographic magazine. And in 2012, he was named one of Canada's top 10 adventurers by Explore magazine. His first book of adventures, Lines on a Map, was released in October 2018. His films include Wild Ones, The Hand of Franklin, Katuriak? Is that right? Yeah, Katuriak. All right, first yeah. try. On the Line, Mammalian, and Borealis, all of which broadcast on CBC's documentary channel in Canada. What's up, Frank? I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for uh, being patient while I struggled through that. Uh, the reading portion. Uh, the reading portion is mostly over now. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> I mean, like like that uh, word Katuriak, that's uh, the Inuit language, which is the, the indigenous people of northern Canada, basically. It's uh, it's very tough to pronounce. You know, they, they got Q's that sound like K's. And uh, the Katuriak actually means mosquito in their language. So you nailed it. You did well there. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's oh, that's great. So I, I learned I learned a new word too. So it's uh, it means mosquito, mosquito and a nuktutut. Yes, exactly. I spend a lot of time in the Pacific Northwest, where I mean that's kind of like where I'm most familiar with uh, some of the indigenous languages and like some of the some of the harder to pronounce names of places I've visited. But I have yet to be in Canada. So you've been up in uh, like uh, Seattle area and that sort of thing, or yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in I'm in Vancouver, so I know the Pacific Northwest really well um but uh yeah i mean gorgeous area and it's uh i just finished a trip a couple of weeks ago we circumnavigated uh vancouver island which is a big island just off the coast of just off just the southern tip basically crosses the border of the u.s and canada but it uh it's like a 1300 kilometer uh journey around that coast recently so uh, i really do love the pacific northwest and the, the giant trees the amazing you know, uh, wildlife out on the ocean, like the whales and, and uh, everything that it offers there for sure. It's got a, a certain uh, aesthetic that's uh, special for sure. It's one of the, it's one of the most beautiful places I've, I've ever, uh, you know, been to. I have, I've yet to see a lot of the world, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> oh, where, where have you been there? Like, where have you been? So, in, so specifically, mostly actually in Seattle, the city. But yep, yep. Uh, outside of there doing things that are, uh, you know, in the wilderness and really experiencing like 
I, I climbed a, a small mountain there called Mount Sai. Is mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a for the most part, it's just a it's just a strenuous hike for the first yeah. four hours, and then the last thirty minutes is real climb. It's where you, it would be best to have gear. Uh, when I went, I was unaware. <laughs> so when I got there, I was kind of doing a little bit of. Little freestyling, yeah. A little bit, of, a little bit of dangerous <laughs> shit because I should have probably been clipped in. But I, the thing was, after we had spent the first four hours getting to that point, I was not going to just stop and go back down without. No, I wanted to see from the top. That's the whole point. Is to- you wanted the summit. <laughs> you ignores the the kind of the uh, that voice in the back of your head that tells you to go down. It's like you wanted it. You went for it, and and yeah. I mean that's what it's all about. Sometimes just you have to. Uh, like anything like life life uh, begins beyond your comfort zone it's the same with doing things in the outdoors right you go out there because it's going to be uncomfortable you're going to get uh you're going to push beyond boundaries that you're comfortable doing because you're faced with situations in the wilderness that are out of your control and, and they put you in these these kind of but then you always like grow out of that too right and you always have a uh, more of a sense of satisfaction and more of a memory everything when you kind of push yourself a little bit for sure yeah. you know, i mean and ever since i uh, was there i mean i can't wait to go and do it again. I mean, I, I love that. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Speaking of uh, spots that actually maybe you might be familiar, more familiar with a little bit further north, which is right on the edge of Canada. So I think from the top of the mountain, you clearly, you could definitely see into Canadian territory. Right. It's an area called Snoqualmie. I don't know if yeah. you're familiar yeah. with been, it, but yeah, that's where sure, I snowboard. Sure. So, oh, got it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, actually, yeah. it's actually the only place I've ever snowboarded. I haven't been to any other, uh, I've never done it in Colorado or any of the more, uh, more famous places just just snoqualmie yeah like not far from there i do a lot of my skiing like backcountry skiing as well as uh some front country skiing at mount baker um, which is just a bit north of snoqualmie there um yeah amazing skiing in in that in that whole zone and tons of snow right they have the, i think baker still has a world record for snowfall in a year which is 94 feet Whoa. and uh so they just get puked on that whole kind of snoqualmie baker zone up and down the cascades there so it's uh it's awesome for like you were doing snowboarding or mountaineering or, or uh, whitewater paddling. There's, there's tons of stuff going on there for sure. Yeah. For what I know you uh, experienced a lot of whitewater. Have you ever been on the Ocoee? That's here in Tennessee. Well, it go, it not, goes several States, but I actually went to way back in the day. I went to the university of Michigan. I was there on like a track and, and cross country running scholarship. Uh, and the only time I've ever been through Tennessee is on a road trip with a bunch of buddies down to uh, Daytona for spring break. So that was oh, my nice. only, I think we bought a bunch of fireworks in a big uh, warehouse at the time or whatever. So uh, that, that that's my only time I've been through Tennessee. So I definitely have to go for sure. Yeah. And, um, and you might, I mean, I think you would, I've done whitewater on uh, the Ocoee. I think you would really enjoy it. It's very, very beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. The Olympics, it, uh, they did the Olympics on that river and I can't recall which year. Uh, it must've been the year that it was held in Atlanta. That, yeah, that 96 sense. must have been 96. Yeah, must have been 96. Sure. Yeah. But uh hey man, actually I have a question that I really wanted to kick it off with and it's just uh it's kind of what I was just reading uh in your introduction and first of all I have to ask uh how does canoeing across the entire country of Canada in a season work logistically? Uh because I wouldn't have a clue how to plan something like that. Like there have to be some pretty mm-hmm. intense obstacles to do to traverse that distance <laughs> yeah for sure it was about about eight thousand kilometers so five thousand mile uh journey um and one season basically means between you know winter so you start in april and you finish in october um before you're kind of there getting in and when the ice goes out and getting and finishing before it comes in again um 
But I mean, Canada, if you look at the geography and geology of Canada, there's nowhere like in the world as far as the interconnected waterways, literally with the Canadian Shield and the way the glaciers carved up, you know, most of the country, uh, you have this literally endless network uh, of lakes and rivers that all connect all the way until you get to like the Rocky Mountains and you got a bit of a, a, a barrier in your way there. And so um, I was going to ask if you had a, yeah. if, you, if you were ever blocked by a mountain range, because I mean, it just yeah. inevitable. And so that, then, then we had to do like a 400 kilometer portage. Um, and at the time we just, we just went uh, basically on that point, we just kind of put all our stuff on a pair of mid wheels, which we put our canoe on and then just walked for seven days, uh, basically 40 miles a day uh, until we got to the first bit of water, uh, in the Rockies and then went down the Fraser river, which goes all the way through BC to the ocean. So that, that was kind of the big kind of portage we had to do or carry, um, of our gear where you couldn't really paddle on the water there, but otherwise pretty much all the way from, uh, the Atlantic ocean in New Brunswick, where we started, uh, going upstream and downstream. So if you're linking across the way, you're, you're always end up going up rivers a lot of the time. Right. So, um, we went upstream through, uh, you know, for, uh, must have been a couple thousand kilometers at least to go through three of our provinces manitoba saskatchewan alberta uh just to get to the rockies because then on the other side it's a much stronger river the fraser that runs all the way through bc much more difficult to go upstream on so it's gonna be uh, yeah yeah as long as you can always get up yeah. up river uh, like for that kind of distance it's surprising like uh, looking at a river upstream um it, it's uh if you along the edges it's actually going downstream so the way the, the water hits that corner, it'll actually flow upstream on the edges. If you know, like an eddy or whatever, in a river, if you've been on the Ocoee or whatever, um, if you work the edges, you can actually paddle a lot of it upstream and not have to be dragging your your uh, your boat along. So we were actually doing okay, like 40 kilometers a day going upstream at a steady kind of clip. So, um, and that's the way people like traditionally used to travel in Canada, the indigenous people, and then the voyagers, the fur traders, they would have gone up and down these these rivers, there were no roads, right? These yeah. were the roads of, of Canada that kind of built the country. And so we kind of followed these kind of general kind of mainline routes through that trip. Um, and back in the day, and that was back in 95. And that just kind of kicked, really kicked off my, my kind of uh, expedition or journey and career, which is really just traveling in my mind. You're just kind of traveling in unique ways and making up these journeys through these beautiful wilderness areas. And you really never know what you get. There's nothing to really consult in terms of like a guidebook or a travel guide. And that's the beauty of doing these things, right? You're you're out there and you're kind of living kind of an anarchistic kind of way, you know, no one can tell you what to do. Yeah, you're free yeah. in the wilderness and you can just, you know, you're, you got basically thousands of kilometers ahead of you and every day is different. Every day is new. It just really keeps you in the moment really present. It's kind of my real happy place in terms of like being out there on one of these journeys for sure. It's, you know? it's funny. I, uh, I recently uh, decided to reread the last of the Mohicans, which is right. A, a very dense Kind of, kind of silly book in some ways because you know yeah it, it was a uh, in that time that was that would have been kind of considered like you know a Vin Diesel movie by by, <laughs> by those standards but uh, what's yeah. what is so interesting is like uh, there is so much of that book that is those people and uh, performing these uh, near miraculous feats of canoeing I mean that, yes. and, and yeah. that's like I mean that's how they're avoiding the entire French army and exactly. also like other. Yeah. Uh, rival tribes and things like that is that these people are uh masters of canoeing and it's a it's an interesting you know uh one anecdote that i really absolutely must share with you because it's yeah just, yeah uh, I've, I've only seen i've only seen the movie with daniel day lewis so uh i haven't read the book yet yeah but you know 
honestly, that's good enough. Daniel Day Lewis is one of the greatest actors to live. So. Oh, absolutely, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I just I wanted to add just one last thing. I, I'm sorry to I just oh, go off tangent, but no, you did make me think of this too. Is that uh, the one of my closest uh, near death experiences was an actual uh, canoeing accident because I oh, really yeah I was on the Buffalo River and it had been a very powerful rain and there were no expected rapids, but there had been some uh, trees that had fallen. Right. And the person in the canoe with me had never been canoeing before. And so uh, when we were coming up to the rapids, I was trying to call up to her, uh, you know, what to do. But she was but she was facing me because she was just sitting there drinking a beer, not expecting like very, <laughs> very powerful water. And so oh. we flipped and I got pinned uh, by my chest to the bottom of the river. And I was underwater mm-hmm. for a very long time. And I've, I, I got to be honest, I think maybe I had 10 seconds left in me before right. I was going to just uh, take just take a lungful. But I wiggled free like right at that moment. And then we had to swim uh, about four miles to catch up with our group. And because wow. we just we had to ditch the canoe, there was no way to get it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you're lucky. I mean, water is, is powerful. I mean, same with me. My, my kind of nearest death experience and all my, you know, travel over the years was one of my, I did the cross Canada canoe trip. And then in 1998, like a few years later, I tried to go reverse it and then come up uh, through Northern BC and through the mountains. And, uh, we basically worked our way up this river called the Skeena river, which comes from just below the Alaska panhandle, um, work our way. We worked away for about a week up that we got Jardy along the way. So picked it up. We had like bad diarrhea. We had to stop for a couple of days while we destroyed a motel room oh, man. and the medication oh. and the medication kind of <laughs> not a, a motel room toilet to be specific. Um, uh, at least you were able to yeah. access a motel because yeah and then and medication too to kind yeah. of take care of this, this this kind of parasite but then we kept going up and we got to this river called the babine river and this is like in april and that's when all the snow is kind of melting and the water is coming down really heavy and we got to this final the babine river through a lot of portaging and we couldn't get up the edge it was flooded edge to edge it's like a, a canyon about you know 30 40 kilometers long and so we ended up just dragging through the bush in grizzly bear country slowly, like two kilometers a day going up and down these canyons and just kind of running out of food, running out of energy and realizing we're not going to get through this until our next food supply. So we decided we finally got past the canyon, um, but then we kind of cracked our canoe. We decided we're going to reverse back to the beginning of this bad canyon. And then we'll just have to do the, all the brutal portaging all the way back. And so we go down. It's really powerful water. At that point, it was not experienced whitewater paddler. We get flipped in like an eight foot wave. And then uh, as we're swimming down, this moose is on shore. We scare it up and it jumps into the water ahead of us. So we're actually ripping down this oh, big river shit. with with a moose and us two in our canoe floating that's everywhere the, around. Uh, that's the most dangerous animal in Canada, <laughs> is it? Isn't it? Am, am uh, I correct? No, I think it, in rut, it can be very dangerous in the fall. Like when they're mating, they will, those big males will definitely try to take you out. Um, uh, they'll I, think I, you're I, a competitor. Yeah. Exactly. I had heard they're, they're kind of like almost like, you know, how, how a hippopotamus would be like a, the most dangerous animal in Africa, surprisingly. Is, yeah, exactly. I thought, I, I'd heard things that a moose will just like just stomp you yeah. to death if you uh, fuck with it. They will in riding season, but but uh, de- definitely not if they're swimming down a whitewater river with you. Uh, <laughs> so we, but we got out in this big, powerful eddy before the moose, and the moose just kept going down this canyon so we never saw him again we kept going down and then uh, as we just you know paddling along we're just getting you can see the beginning of these canyon walls 100 feet high ahead of us and then we're we ha- we know we can get where we can get out but then we flipped couldn't get out and we got swept into this canyon and then um the guy i was with with he was uh, pretty quickly he swallowed a lot of water we had dry suits and, and pfds on 
but he was kind of saying, you know, I can't go on very much more. We're, we're trying to stay with the canoe, but you literally couldn't get out because the water's pressed against these canyon walls and you're just scraping your fingers along. There's nowhere to stop. There's no yeah. way it's just running hot. Yeah. And then, um, I just shouted him, you, you know, get out where you can just forget about the canoe. I'll stay with the canoe. And then he eventually remember he got to this pile of rocks. He actually hung onto it, crawled up and he just kind of looks at me with these dead eyes and and like he was just exhausted and I, I was still full of energy. It was, it was, that's the time when you're like still invincible. I hadn't had that near death experience yet. And I thought I can, I can, I can get this canoe out somewhere. Yeah. I just had this absolute <laughs> stupid confidence. And then, um, so Ben, he kind of just looks at me and I say, I'll get it out around the next corner. And I could see in his eyes. He goes, I'm never going to fucking see that guy again. Yeah. And then, uh, so I'm down there and I'm, and it's kind of narrowing. And then I actually straddle the, uh, the belly of the canoe um and i'm going down and i can see it just narrowing in the pinhole but i just think i can ride this thing all the way to the ocean i can do this and then oh my god i, got quick, I quickly flipped and knocked off and then i'm struggling with the canoe again and i had a i was sponsored by national geographic for that one i had a camera with a red light still running like mounted on the canoe in the middle i remember just struggling with it and kind of thinking am i am i filming my my death here you know it's just <laughs> gonna happen and then not too soon after that thought there's a big river-wide recirculating hole so basically edge to edge the whole river going kind of underwater and I went down with it, me and the canoe and just went, pulled down really deep, like 10 feet, popped me back up. I got like half a breath, but then down again and held yeah. a bit longer, a little bit longer, a little bit longer. Terrifying. And then, uh, it, yeah, yeah, it finally released me. And then it put me down really deep, like bottom of the river kind of thing. It was just dark and murky and my lungs were going to explode. I was like, you know, 20 feet underwater. I thought I have to breathe. I'm going to breathe in water. This is it. I'm, I'm dead. And then I swam really hard to the side, just like a last burst of energy. And it released me up the edge of the canyon. And I grabbed onto some rocks there and managed to haul myself out. And then I, I kind of dragged myself up and the canoe kind of just popped out of the hole at the same time and just started zipping down at like 20 miles an hour down the river. And I just let out this big kind of scream because I basically survived death or whatever. And yeah. then I had to like crawl out of the canyon and walk a couple hours. Eventually bumped into a guy who was checking the beginning of the road. And we got a helicopter out. We actually went and did a helicopter rescue of my buddy up the canyon. But um, after that, I actually decided I'm going to start learning how to whitewater paddle and you respect the river. And so oh, yeah. either you get you get back on the horse or you just give up completely. Right. So um, but that was kind of a, a, an early experience. If you if you survive those near death experiences, hopefully you you like learn a lesson and you kind of grow from that. Uh, and that's what, if you learn from your mistakes, as long as you don't die, you will become better in, in the outdoors and adventure, you know, nature will smack you around a bit and that's, uh, and you, you definitely learn to respect it and learn about it in order, if you're going to keep on and, surviving and doing these and, things, right. And so, to go, yeah. to go back just a moment, uh, when you were talking about like, in that, you know, when you're getting beat down and getting thrown down to the bottom of the river yeah. and you're getting, you're getting exhausted, your lungs are getting worn out, but you get that final burst of energy. Uh, yeah, and yeah. that's, you know, like uh, the little story I told earlier, like that is precisely how I got out of my situation. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was down there, I was pinned. I was trying to find ways to reach something to pull myself out. And yeah. what it was, is I was down there longer and longer realizing I couldn't reach the edge of the canoe or anything to pull myself. And yeah. then I realized like, it just, you know, kind of in my mind, I was like, these are the final, you know, like you said, these are the final moments of my life. Yeah. Am I going to do, do something or not? And I just kind of dug deep down into a, a part of myself that I don't typically dig into. And yeah, it's just there for, for these special occasions. Yeah. yeah just the, one of the most high energy bursts of power that I've ever probably used in my life to get 
and I was only able to catch the edge of the, like get myself enough to catch the edge of the canoe with my forefinger and middle finger and use right. that to slide out. And right. then I didn't surface until, I mean, I surfaced like 30 feet further down the river before I was wow. out and I was puking in water and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't, and I couldn't breathe or call back to my friend who had left with the canoe for a long, because, you know, I had so much water in my lungs. I, don't, I just, when you said that, that final burst, it really resonated with me. It's a unique experience that you kind of have to. Yeah. Your body doesn't, death. your body only accesses that at the very edge of, of the blackness. You know, it's like you're either, you have that burst of energy, that one last chance you have of, of being alive or else you're, you're gone. Right. So uh, I think everyone's got that, but most people probably, you know, thankfully probably don't have to, uh, uh, use that reserve that's in, in probably each of us. Right. So, um, but, uh, but definitely you learn, I'm sure you learn from that experience and, 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 and everything that happened to lead up to what happened and then you getting out too. Right. So, um, Oh, and I, and so, I do want to, yeah. uh, this is something that, uh, it was when I was asking you about the logistics of doing this kind of, uh, 5,000 mile canoe trip, yeah. you know, and all these things. One of the first things that it, besides like one of the first things obviously popped in my head is, I thought, you know, what if you, yeah, like what you said, you had a, you came up against the Rocky mountains, like those kind of obstacles, like right. the yeah. land itself. But then I was realizing like how difficult it is to, uh, and you were saying that you were running short on food on this, on that last. Uh, yeah. That just uh, gives me, our, you, our kind of pacing you, out and timing was off on that one for sure. Yeah. Do you like supplement? Uh, do you like uh, try to do any, any kind of fishing or wild foraging to supplement your like store of food? Or is that not even something that you try to uh, add to it? Yeah, like like I've kind of definitely refined my the way I do my I can, I can carry like I've carried up to fifty days of food uh, in a canoe. Like you can carry fifty days oh, or whatever wow. for that for okay. so quite a, quite a bit of food and that sort of even with like portaging and carryovers, you can still get it through. Um, but I when I do my trips, I don't I don't count on on supplementing. Basically, if you're doing like say a 2000 mile canoe trip in the wilderness and there's no towns between where you start and where you finish. And typically I'll kind of start in a small little town or village. And I'll just use my own power. And I don't, I don't usually use bush planes and stuff like that to drop to the top. I kind of work my way upstream through the land and this sort of thing. You kind of see more that way. But um, yeah, I, you basically, you have to, if you try to, if you try to forage and count on foraging and fishing, you're not going to move very quickly. Oh, yeah. So it, it's almost like uh, in terms of doing a, a long journey, it's counterproductive, I think, to count on that, because then if you're not moving and you're eating, you're still not going anywhere. You want to basically be able to cover a certain amount of consistent distance. So I usually have all my food that I need for the trip. So just simple, like oatmeal in the morning with coffee, some tortillas with like, you know, uh, meat and cheese or whatever for for uh for lunch you know clip bars you know uh, a bit of trail mix and then just some freeze-dried food in the evening and that's going to get me through but then the nice thing about canada in the north you mean everyone's a heroic fisherman up there right yeah. you can you can basically fire in if you don't have like something on your line in like three casts like a grayling or a big lake trout or or a, or a char then then there's no point but you always will because these places are just untouched as far as fishing goes so you could so Often what I'll do is just, you know, uh, if, if we feel like it, you know, he's have a little grill and then uh, cast the line in and then you can, you'll, you'll have a couple of fish to throw them on the grill and then just kind of fl flick the meat off, have like, you know, uh, say a, a fish taco the next morning, kind of keep it in the, on the cool bottom of the canoe for that, or just throw it into your freeze dried food as well, but don't necessarily count on it. Sometimes you just get to camp late, you're tired, you set up camp, you just want to chill out and then just have your freeze dried food and that sort of thing. But uh, 
yeah, that's kind of like the fishing and that sort of thing is a bonus, but it's not something I'd ever count on on a wilderness trip. You want to basically be prepared. And now I kind of know how much distance I can cover every day consistently upstream, downstream on average. I usually go about 40 kilometer day average in the wilderness um, through all sorts of conditions. And, and uh, yeah, so you, I kind of know, you know, and you have a measure of reserve of a few days in case you get pinned in by a big wind or, or yeah. something happens. So yeah. But, you're, uh, yeah. And you're yeah. Trying, you're, I mean, you're, you're putting power into it. You're, you're doing, you know, powerful rowing. You're not, you're not floating down the stream with a uh, fishing pole in your hand. Just yeah. bite like a, you know, it's not a, uh, it's not just like a, a like a, a one day on the river type canoe trip. This is like, in- yeah. Yeah. So like, I usually do like, I'll, I'll usually have 10 hours a day of moving or on a river. So I'll get, get going by 9am finish around seven uh, long days in the summertime, right? Like this time of year up in, in, in Northern Canada, Nunavut Northwest territories is 24 hours of daylight. So you don't worry about the light as much. Um, and you can kind of get in your long days, no problem. So um yeah just kind of put in a consistent amount of time and, and just kind of move steadily through and it all kind of evens out after 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 days right so um uh kind of just a, a quick pivot uh i have one more another question just uh, sure. that, it's from, that was also from your introduction that uh it's moving away from the away from the river uh to another uh expedition you did and i just had some curiosity you know I had some questions about that and it was that uh you cycled uh, 2,000 kilometers along the Yukon River, and that was right, in, yeah. and that was in winter. Am I correct? Is that was in the yeah, in, yeah. Uh, what, so we, what is the what is the temperature along the Yukon River in Canada during the winter? I just I have to know. Yeah, the coldest we got, and we were kind of hitting like March into April, so it's kind of like as you're coming out of winter, um, so you got longer travel days, more light. But uh, we coldest field is like minus 45 Celsius, which is like i think plus 30 yes well well, celsius and fahrenheit meet at minus 40 so it's more than minus 40 fahrenheit as well they kind of there's there's like a point minus 40 yeah so it's (laughs) a minus 40 40 ish fahrenheit basically so yeah oh my god Um, you know i I, i'm i am a cyclist and there's a point where i cannot stand it and i think it's somewhere i think if it's if it's below 10 degrees i think that's where i've i lose my uh my will (laughs) <laughs> yeah, to be yeah. outside so i but you know also i i i was born in, in arizona and then you know now i live in tennessee I, i've always lived in very warm weather places yeah yeah uh, so and i guess do you, do you think there is that kind of like maybe you just you have a hardiness for that kind of uh yeah i think and, and that was kind of like overnight temperatures i think probably when we were cycling during the day you know probably like minus 20 25 which is um yeah it's kind of a manageable temperature you kind of uh and, and if you're like and if you're moving your body generates enough heat to be okay there as long as you're kind of ha- your, your hands and everything are covered and yeah and that sort of thing so and i think what, you kind, do, of, yeah. what kind of gear do you use for that like just i mean it seems like you would need some pretty extreme gear for like, <clears throat> yeah, for the like and, and yeah and like that trip for example that was pre-fat bikes we did that back in 2003 and the reason we did the trip is that we, there's two guys, you know, speaking about people cycling in winter in, in 1901, like a hundred years, over a hundred years before we did this trip, these two guys had actually cycled in these very simple early day bikes from Dawson to Nome across the Yukon oh. river, like from Dawson. And they basically did it because there was in 1901, there was a gold strike in Nome and there'd been a big gold strike in Dawson in 98, but all the gold was kind of gone. So about 10,000 people went from Dawson to Nome and they kind of, hammered out this ice road on the river basically so these guys had enough of a, of a hard track to kind of 
go on their, their bikes, these guys, uh, Max Hirschberg and Ed Jessen. And so we had their journals for our journey. And then we basically followed their route um, from Dawson to Nome. And ironically, it's actually way less populated and way harder to do now than then because uh, the only tracks you get are some of the, the indigenous guys will go village to village on their snow machine tracks. And you can use those because they kind of set up overnight in the cold. And you kind of with a, with a, we kind of had these kind of fat rims that would spread our tires out a little bit, but it was still pretty punchy. And that's kind of allowed us to kind of cycle across like on a fat bike now that trip would be a lot easier because the tires are way wider they'll distribute your weight more but back yeah. then with the, the skinnier tires it was definitely a little bit more uh like technical and um yeah so we had I those can't even imagine like, with, a, with the in, in 1901 the the technology of bike that you'd be able to use and yeah. the fact that you would have to wear furs that would be the only kind of gear you could really <laughs> have to maintain warmth yeah i guess they like were just the, some bad ass dudes there's yeah, only way, oh. <laughs> bikes that just kind of come out and they're basically following in these because basically most people took dog sleds and some people even took horses people taking all, all sorts of things just to get to know them for the gold rush yeah people couldn't get up by water because it was frozen at the time as winter right so uh, these guys ed jessen and Matt, max hirschberg they kind of uh uh made their way along this kind of well-beaten track and uh at the time they had because there were ten thousand people going across they had all these like cookhouses and stuff set along the way we basically kind of would resupply in these uh, First Nations uh, villages along the way in Alaska um, just to kind of get our food and keep going along. Uh, we had like down pogies, which is like almost something you wrap around your handlebars that you slip your hand into for, so you have a bare hand on your handlebar, but there's this nice down like uh, wrap on your hand that you kind of slip in and out of. Um, we had like basically mountaineering kind of uh, suits, like same thing you'd see guys go up Everest with for like the evening and hanging out daytime. We had minus uh, 50 Celsius, so minus like like 45, 50 Fahrenheit bags. So really, you know, good for the, the overnight temperatures that we'd get sometimes. And um, yeah, I just kind of snacked throughout the day and uh, and just kept on moving. Big kind of minus 100 Baffin boots, which are like just kind of basically just big, big insulated boots that everyone uses up there with flat pedals. And then uh, just keep grinding along. A lot of pushing your bike through snow drifts and stuff too. Um, uh yeah so that was it just kind of moving forward and then we did a film on my youtube channel it's called bikes on ice if someone wants to see the journey and, ex and experience what we did there you can check out frank wolf youtube and bikes on ice and they're all free films of these films that i've done over the years that they're mostly on that channel and you can uh you can check out some of those adventures will, you can see i will definitely see, check that see out what kind of what kind of gear we were using and and, and what we went through there too it seems as well. like, so, yeah. i am I, I know that i expressed uh, an, an aversion to uh like the extreme cold but it does yeah. seem like a just for your mind a very nice period i mean just it just it seems like you could really just kind of get locked into the fact that which you know your life is riding that bike and yeah it's you know, simple it's, yeah it's, it's meditative and I, I don't know it just seems those those kind of things really appeal to me i like i like long bike rides i like you know yeah it's the same thing like like i just kind of use it the the tool for the job in that case because we were doing a retracing of guys who didn't use bikes but I kind of use, I'm not, I'm not necessarily a canoeist or a kayaker or a skier. Um, I just kind of use whatever the best tool for the job is, but all, all, all the, all these journeys have the same kind of mental attitude. It's the same thing. You're kind of, after about two weeks, you basically forget who you are, where you came from. Your life becomes this journey and you, you forget what your life, your, your nine to five life in the city is like, that's gone. It's because it's you get lost in the journey. You get lost in this rhythm. You're fully absorbed and engaged in, in moving forward and working your way through these landscapes, 
Um, and that just kind of, uh, that's, that's the beauty and the simplicity of it. I mean, like you said, you're getting up, you're have you're eating food, having a nice cup of coffee and then just getting in your canoe or in your kayak or on your skis or on your bike. And you're just kind of moving through the landscape and it, and you're kind of just, it, it's kind of, it's like a chess match with nature all the time. There's always challenges you're going to be running into. Um, and that's the beauty of it. And you're just kind of doing it day after day after day. You can't really get that on a one week or a two week trip. You got to be out there for 30 days. You got to, you got to do these oh, yeah. long journeys. Cause that, 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 that's really, that's where you really get lost in, in, in the kind of the, I guess the real Zen and you kind of tap into, I think what we're all wired to be is kind of a, a very, especially in the wintertime, you have this quiet, but one thing about snow, it absorbs everything, any kind of noise. It's just always so quiet. And so, you know, all, only thing you hear when you're biking on, on the snow is, is the, like the crunch of your tires through the snow and that's it. And there's, there's, there's nothing else, you know, there's no, it's just all absorbed into nature. So um, that's the beauty about skiing and or biking on snow, any kind of snow kind of trip has that beauty, but uh, same with canoeing or kayaking. You're like just recently kayaking around the West coast. You hear the, like the kind of the, the white noise of the surf every night. And that's kind of your, you're sleeping on these beaches and you have the surf just kind of lulling you to sleep and, and you just, you know, wind, birds waking you up in the morning. This is it. It's very simple sounds of nature and there's no noise. And I think it's even more important these days. Like we have such a, I guess, really a busy, almost like plugged in society, right? Where we have everyone's, you know, got their phones and their computers and, and, and everything's got to be happening all the time. It's always so busy out there. You have no choice. There's, there's, no, there's no connection. There's no cell service. There's no internet. It's just you. And you, you've got things like an in-reach, which you can text out. I usually, what I do on my trips, um, I do, uh, actually, I'm doing a trip in about a week. I'm leaving on a, on a 1,300-kilometer canoe trip, but I, I do a daily haiku on Instagram. So I kind of do a little 575 yeah. that, uh, that basically just kind of captures either the essence of the day or a moment of the day. And then people can see where we're camping that night. So people can follow me along in a map tracking thing, but that's about all I do. I do one haiku every day and just you know so my mom knows where i am basically yeah yeah. and then uh and and then kind of go on so it's just the real simplicity you get with these journeys and then once you get into the groove of it it just becomes your normal life you know your 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 tent is your home your canoe is your office and your job is moving forward through space and time it's that's it it's simple you know so hold up it's time for another my views are my own astrological reading this week's astrological sign is virgo Hello, Virgo. As you know, those of the Virgo sign are known to be hardworking, creative, and reliable. And that is why this week you will once again reliably be found tampering with the Book of the Dead, trying to raise the old gods. But watch out. Due to your stubborn and overthinking nature, you will accidentally summon the demon Sultan Azazoth, the blind idiot god of chaos. This could cause some trouble because you do hate chaos. But remember, Azazoth is also the blind dreamer of all chaos and destruction. This can cause some friction in the workplace as you try to protect your psyche from descending into the madness brought on by staring into the face of the cold one. Just remember to be yourself and chant, Be gone, Akamoth! Be gone, Vakvaraj! And don't forget to give yourself some time for self-care. And remember, anything you find relaxing is self-care, like indexing the offspring of Azazoth, such as Nyalarthotep or the Nameless Mist. Thanks for listening, Virgo. And now back to the interview. 
It's, actually, it's so funny uh, when, it, you, when you said like, just so my mom knows where I am. Cause like I have, uh, <laughs> no, but I have a very similar thing. I, I, have, I have a very, my mom is very supportive of me. You know, just now you were inspiring me so much. Right? I just, I just wanted to pack up my shit right now and get on my bike and just go ride to California. Uh, yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I, that is one of the things that I, I put in my mind. I'm like, all right, I got to make sure that my mom knows I'm alive along this journey. Mm. <laughs> yeah. 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 But no, she, like that's, there's nothing. She probably supports me doing more than doing uh wilderness type shit. That's, you know, she, cause she knows I get in a lot less trouble. Uh, in the wild <laughs> than i do in the city so it's true yeah shout out yeah. to moms a shout out to you know there's a lot to be said for getting out of a city and uh finding like the, the peace of the wild yeah uh, yeah and my I, mom my mom's always been super supportive of same thing i mean i think i think if you do those things it's good to have that kind of support from your loved ones to go out there and that, and them understanding that this is something that's good for you and it's something you want to do even though they might be worried. I mean, you know, that's the way it is. I mean, until there was like an inreach or whatever. And I used, I only started using those in like 2016 before that, it'd be like, okay, I'm going to be about 60 days. Um, uh, if you don't hear from me, that's good news. Cause I'd had like a, I love a personal locator beacon, which you kind of press and then hopefully someone will come get you, but there's no communication. Right. So, and that would be all I carry with me. And that's, that's what, that's something even more special in a way where you don't have that connection. You don't even have a choice to have that connection. You're just, you're just out there. You're writing in your paper journal every evening and you're just kind of doing your trip. And it's, 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 that's a beautiful thing. So the, that disconnect is, is super refreshing and energizing, you know? You know, I, I had a strong feeling that when I asked you to come on, I was going to get uh, that, the, that inspiration, that wanderlust <laughs> vibe thing going on. And it's absolutely happening, but I, I, I have to move on to this next part because uh a big part of why I asked you to come talk to me is that, you know, uh, you wrote a book called Lines on a Map, which is currently on my reading list. However, I didn't get a chance to read it before this interview because you are a, a difficult man to catch on the grid. And, so, and my options were to wait until you got back from your next expedition and get a chance to read the book first. Or obviously my choice was I wanted to talk to you now yeah. I'll read the, and I'll read the book later, but we can talk about it. Yeah, right now, just because I, I've, you know, I've read about what it's about. So I, but I do have a question about that book specifically. And just like, uh, with your relationship to it, when you do book readings, uh, are, are there any, is there any particular part of the book you most like to read an excerpt from? Is that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did, uh, like my book was at the, the Banff, uh, Banff has a big kind of outdoor, you know, book and film festival every year in, in 2019, I did a presentation there. And, uh, yeah, I, I think one, there's, there's a few stories there, I guess one, one story, um, I mean, I could do a quick reading of that excerpt if you want. Um, oh, that'd be fantastic. Take, yeah, if you, if you don't yeah. mind. I can probably just walk through here, but yeah, there's one story, which is more one that I tell in kind of an entertaining slash, you know, uh, dramatic way, which is when I went across Canada, the guy I did the trip with, um, I didn't actually know him before I went on the trip, I met him once about two weeks before I was going to spend six months in the canoe with him. And he ended up being something uh, (laughs) quite different than I had expected. He was not as advertised. Um, And we, yeah, we basically didn't talk to each other for the last three months of the trip. We were just kind of both motivated by going forward, very different people. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah. So, but he told an amazing story that almost like held the trip together. So the story he basically told, was uh was that he'd um basically the first time i met the guy 
I kind of, he kind of lived in a wealthy part of uh, close to Toronto where my folks were. I was visiting them and I went to visit him in this place called Oakville and kind of a you know, mansion line street, pretty well to do guy, I guess. So I go up there and I kind of, you know, ring the doorbell and, uh, and door opens this kind of, you know, magnificent looking man, you know, six foot four kind of square jaw, you know, uh, hawk nose, blue eyes, had a big Fabio kind of mane of hair. Um, and right away he kind of says, let's go for a walk. And I said, all right, great. Let's go for a walk. And so I go out in the, in for a walk. And within a minute, he goes into this story that I call the bear, which is one of the stories in this book. And basically he kind of, uh, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of people like students and that sort of thing in Canada, in college, you know, in the summers between college, they'll tree plant. So you go up in the North, you'll plant trees where they've logged and it's kind of a big thing in all, all the provinces. And uh, so he was a tree planter in this place called Swan Hills, Alberta, which is in uh, Northern Alberta. And at the time, you know, he was telling me this in 1995, you couldn't Google anything anyone said, you just had to take them for their word. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and so he, he basically said it was, it was the highest density of grizzlies in all of North America or in Canada. And uh, because of that, they kept a shotgun at the tree caches where the planters would they plant their trees, they go get some more trees in these caches and keep planting. And so he, he basically said that he used to plant with a couple of dogs when it was like a pit bull, when it was like a half, half wolf, a couple of rough and tough dogs. Yeah. And they have, have them by a side when he's planting. And he used to plant also with a, a planting partner. People often like plant together to kind of keep each other company and all that sort of thing. And you describe this girl, it's like a beautiful, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed gal named Everest, kind of very distinct name. And so that's quite a name. Yes. Him and Everest were on, on the planting block one day. And so she was down at the one end planting with like a, you know, headphones, listening to music. And he was at the other end and, and uh, he'd kind of, he'd kind of, first time I met him, he was kind of accentuating all his, his, uh, his, his, uh, his, his money lines with uh, a cigarette because he's a smoker. So you take these long, dramatic inhales and exhales kind of thing. Yeah. And so he kind, of, he kind of stops there in the middle of the street and he goes, kind of takes a big drag and goes, and the dogs were acting squirrely that day, kind of like Clint Eastwood almost, right? Okay. You know, it's a bit of a, thou- bit of a thousand yard stare. And so he's, he's, he's a performative yeah. guy. He's a, yeah. Well, he kind of very serious though. Like kind of like, yeah. you know, uh, kind of like the guy, the, uh, Christian Bale with his Desperado song and Seinfeld, that's kind of an obscure reference, but uh, you know, kind of suddenly a thousand <laughs> yards. Yeah. yeah I, I get that reference. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, but anyway, so <laughs> he, he says, so anyway, so he's planting away and all of a sudden the two dogs start going crazy and he looks up and the dogs are, are sprinting for the other end of this cut block. And Everest is the far end of the cut block, a few hundred feet away. And he sees on one side of Everest, she's kind of hunched over planting. She can't hear or see anything because um, she's listening to music and she's focused on her work. And so on one side, a couple of grizzly bear cubs pop up on one side of her. And on the other side of her, mama bear comes. And so before the dogs can get in there and run interference, mama charges Everest, knocks her like 15 feet, ragdolls her. And then before wow. the, the mom can do any more, um, the two dogs come in, run interference. Uh, uh, my, 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 uh, Lance at the time there, he runs back to the, um, the, uh, the cash, grabs a shotgun, runs back and then he pumps a shotgun, fires a warning shot in the air just to get the bear's attention. And, uh, and then he, so when he's telling me the story, he kind of pauses at that moment, takes a big kind of inhale and goes, and then I had that bear's undivided attention that was his money line for the story and so right away the bear mama bear turns around and runs at 
runs at uh, at Lance full speed. He kind of pumps another shell in the in, in the uh, in the chamber. Waits, waits, waits. You know, 60, 70, 50 feet. Boom, pops it off. Clips a bear. Bear still moving though. Comes towards him up on its hind legs. Puts another shot in the bear's chest. Boom, the bear falls down. You know, and then he walks over calmly. And coup de gras puts one more in the bear's skull to finish it off. So, so the aftermath of the story is is that uh, Everest was fine. She had like a couple broken ribs, broken wrists. The two bear cubs were sent off to a wildlife sanctuary. And of course they weighed this female grizzly and apparently it was over a thousand pounds, you know, the heaviest uh, female grizzly they'd ever, you know, weighed in the wild. So this, I go right away, wow, I'm going out on the trip with a, you know, a wild man. This is, this guy is yeah. pretty hardcore. Yeah. So, so then you imagine that we're going now, we, we set off on a six month trip across Canada, don't really know each other. And pretty much every person we met or you know ranger or someone who invited us in for dinner or coffee he told this story because it was such a oh great my. story it's like a, yeah. it's like a great icebreaker right yeah and yeah. if you didn't tell it if you didn't tell, yeah. if you didn't if you didn't tell it i would kind of i would say hey man tell the bear story right tell the bear it's a great story, icebreaker man. yeah tell it come <laughs> what on what are you doing the fuck are you doing? Then, tell the bear story <laughs> exactly and so meanwhile on the trip itself though like with like six like we just weren't talking to each other we you know didn't get along for various reasons but we got to the end and then remember at, at the end, he he basically had his lawyer write up a piece of paper unbeknownst to me and serve it to me and tell me that anything, any proceeds, any any kind of, you know, uh, uh, writing or or uh, or uh, stories or books or whatever, he owned everything. It was all his, everything from the trip, even though I'd done all the photography and kept a detailed journal, he did. And so I that kind of broke it off with me for him. We pretty much didn't you know, talk to each other again. But um, a couple months after that, uh, meeting a buddy at, at a pub, like in North Vancouver, where I live here. Uh, he was a ski patroller. And so he came in and uh, meet him for beer. And he comes in with one of his fellow patrollers. And it's, it's a beautiful blonde haired, blue eyed gal named Everest, of course. So here I am. Get out of town. Everest, yeah. Okay. Yes, Everest <laughs> in the flesh. And, and so, so uh, I kind of say, wait, okay, just make sure it's not a coincidence. So I kind of, did you ever plant in Swan Hills, Alberta? And she kind of goes, yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, you know a guy named uh, Lance Weathers? She goes, yeah, yeah, I knew Lance. It's kind of like offhand. And I go, well, how are you after the bear attack? And she goes, what, bear attack? Whoa. So I tell the whole story <laughs> I just told you. And she like is completely flabbergasted and says, well, I didn't really know Lance at all. He was just a guy in camp. And um, I never planted with him either. I planted with another guy. And then the only thing we had with Grizzly, mom and cubs, is they, they came on our land once. We went back to get the shotgun, came back and was gone. And, uh, and that was it. So he basically concocted this kind of hero rescue story for a girl that he was probably infatuated with. And, and he told it as his kind of seminal representative, you know, life story all the way across Canada. And then it made me reflect on that trip and say, did anything you tell me was, was anything true, right? Like yeah. it, it was at all just, you know, a, a pack of lies, but then it's like a, it's like a usual suspects type thing. Where totally, yeah. a verbal cancer or whatever. <laughs> but or then I guess, <laughs> Exactly. And I guess my conclusion is that, you know, basically this cross Canada canoe trip was replacing his seminal life story. That was a complete lie with something that was actually real. So yeah. now he had one, he went across Canada and it, and hopefully it wiped all that stuff away. So, but anyways, that's one of the kind of stories in the books. And so it's kind of like stories within stories, not necessarily, Oh, then I did this. And then it, it's kind of like finding those nuggets and those themes and those kind of, you know, almost the, the essence of, of, of the journey, like, like I try to get out of, out of, um, out of, uh, out of everything. So like, I was kind of describing to you a little bit about the, um, 
kind of why I do it and, and the, the essence of it and stuff like that. So I wasn't prepared here. Just a little, I'm going to flick to the book here in a second here, but uh, I'll just give you a few paragraphs out of this one here. Give a little reading for the audience. Here we go. Um, yeah. So this is kind of, this is basically a, a story from a, like an 1800 kilometer uh, journey. And I call this a loss. And so here we go. You guys ready? Ready. Oh, we're ready. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So lost. Uh, it eventually goes the memory of her, of cuddling close in bed as she breathes softly in slumber. The pleasant, familiar scent of her hair inches away. That warmth, that security, it dissolves like sugar in the wilderness waters of this journey. I haven't seen or heard from my wife in weeks. Thoughts of her now rarely enter my mind. Bit by bit and day by day, she slips deeper into my subconscious until it's hard for me to fathom her existence. She is lost to me. I wake in the darkness on day 26, the tent fly flapping in the wind. It's not my wife beside me, but instead a huddled mound inside a sleeping bag, snoring away and smelling not so great. I elbow my tent mate, Sean, Sean, time to get up. A groan acknowledges the nudge. It's 3.30 a.m. on Casbah Lake. Yesterday, we were pinned in by a northwest gale, the first time after a thousand days of canoe tripping that I've ever had to sacrifice a full day of progress due to wind. The breeze has eased from gale to strong, and we're moving by 5 a.m. The more time I spend living wild in the north, the more I see similarities between us and the various creatures that make their home here. The land and the weather defines its inhabitants, not the other way around. Take, for example, the simple mosquito. This wispy insect can't fly in any kind of wind, waiting for a lull to allow its vampiric work. Similarly, we avoid wind when we paddle, working the lee shore as much as possible, and sometimes, like yesterday, unable to work against its power at all. When the wind finally calms and gives us an opening, we strike full force and with gusto, tearing at the water with our paddles like mosquitoes at flesh. Pulling hard out of our sheltered bay, we turn the canoe into the brunt of the blow for the final exposed 15-kilometer stretch of Casbah that leads to the Kazan River. The sky is slate gray and the meter-high waves steep and black, coming at us like endless sentries fighting our forward progress. It takes a half hour to get comfortable with the rhythm of the, of the waves, angling the canoe just so in order to carry us high and dry over a crest into the trough and then over the next crest. They come in ocean-like sets, building to a peak every seven waves or so, and then easing off before building again. We groove to this rhythm for three hours until it hits Kazan, its current sweetly pulling us away from the blustery lake and into its embrace. Lengthy expeditions like this one are about loss, loss of comfort, loss of routine, loss of connection with those left behind. When everyday comforts are scuttled, life becomes exceedingly simple. A tent is home, a canoe is transportation, and all food needed is on board. You immerse fully in the simple act of moving forward through space and time without past or future to muddle the mind. So there you go. That was the opening of the story lost. So it's that kind of thing. That's kind of the, that's why I do these trips. That's, that's the state it puts me into. Yeah. I want to say, uh, thank you, Frank, for doing that. That's uh, beautifully written. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Also, I want to say thanks for showing me up and showing that you can, uh, read out loud much better than I can. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, I'm, uh, but no, thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for reading that excerpt. I've, I've done I, some readings before, so I've done that one before. Yeah, I've I think practice. Yeah. I had, some, I had a feeling you've, you've had some practice. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So Frank, uh, there's, this is a, we've reached the section of this podcast called the lightning round. 
And this is where I'm going to ask you questions at a very rapid pace. And for your part, you are meant to not think about it and Mm -hmm. gut reaction, your answer. So like, so try not to uh, mull it over. Try to just whatever your gut says, that's the answer. Cause that's really, that's what we're trying to get at. That's how we play this game. It's kind of, it's kind of like the game portion. So, uh, and some of these questions are a little bit sillier, you know, than others, but some of them are also very serious. And I really do want your, uh, your honest opinion on are these one word answers just short short and sweet uh, right? yeah just kind of like uh just whatever like the first thing that pops in your head is is that's kind of i feel like how i always ask everyone to do this so okay, got it whatever it. uh whatever the, the spirit strikes you as uh, first one would be this and i don't know how you feel about this but uh i feel that some forests feel friendlier than others uh why do you think that people experience certain campsites to be much spookier and less welcoming than others and for that, I would say that scientific or supernatural answers, either or, are acceptable in this case. I think it's whatever you're used to. Like, uh, I'm a real forest person. I, I love like dark, you know, coastal forest campsites. Where it's almost like you're snug beneath the forest. But some people like the open, arid desert. I don't like those campsites as much. They're just so dry and, and it, it just crackles. So I almost feel a bit exposed in those campsites. Yeah, you know, I I almost just so it, it for me it's just more about the nature, the kind of the the snug, protective nature of a forest is where I like to be inside as far as that aesthetic. Um, you are precisely opposite. Yeah, I yeah, like to, yeah. I like from to camp Arizona, in the desert. right? So yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I have camped in the desert. You know, I've been in the, the Canyonlands in Utah and stuff like that. But it's definitely my if I was to choose, I'd go uh, I'd go forest for sure. Yeah, I think we touched on this just a little bit briefly, but uh, this is a little bit, a bit different. Uh, I've seen a photo of you carrying uh, multiple packs of gear and dragging a kayak tethered to your waist across a frozen tundra. And yes. the question is, how do you maintain strength through extreme exhaustion? I, I find I get, um, I think it's, it's a big thing these days, even about um, intermittent fasting, or whatever you don't, we have way too much food or energy now than we ever do. Like the, the diet I described before of like oatmeal, coffee, you know, tortillas, meat and cheese and freeze dried food, I can go all day long. And I, I just feel hyper energized. I think I'm energized what, by what's around me. I don't usually get exhausted. Um, really? It's almost like, yeah, I think also I know how to pace myself. I mean, I go steady and I go at my steady pace and it's a relatively quick pace uh, for traveling through the wilderness. But um, you just get into a groove and a rhythm and are energized by everything around you. You don't really think too much about hunger. Um, I always go into every trip. I lose about 20 pounds trip typically in about, usually I lose a pound a day for 20 days and then I, I stabilize. And so in a 30 day trip, I'm kind of reach my lean hunted kind of weight, you know, halfway through or whatever. And, uh, but, but the energy is amazingly there. Your, your body becomes super efficient at, at moving. It actually gets stronger in, in these times. I mean, you have long days, you do get tired for sure. And there are limits to how, how you don't get exhausted, but it's amazing. Like I, I'm just wired on these trips. I'll like sleep four hours a night. I just, I'm excited about every day and it just keeps me hyper. It, I think it's a, it's as much a mental state as a physical state for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Everything you said about, uh, about the mental state and in your environment, but also you did uh, in the beginning, are you one of the people that kind of swears by oatmeal as a, as a power? It's food? just simple. I don't, I don't know if it's a power food. It's just like, it's light and it'll, it'll keep and, and, you know, three packs, three packets a day of Quaker, whatever I can get my hands on 
yeah, for a trip. Just, um, I've, just, bit, I've, yeah. known, I've known guys, even like kind of bodybuilder type guys, mm-hmm. and they like swear by uh, hitting, hitting the oatmeal before the gym, which is a kind of an unusual pre-workout meal. But, right, right. Yeah. But, I mean, also, the, I've seen people with the, the kind of results – shit it must work <laughs> yeah it's just calories it's just calories and on a trip like that you burn everything up so it doesn't yeah. matter probably doesn't matter what you eat whatever you choose like last year the partner i did the trip with she was completely keto she everything so she brought a full keto diet along so her diet was completely opposite of mine but for her it worked great so you know. oh that seems like that would be terrible to be on a low carb diet on a you know in an, an endurance based Mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think she'd been doing it for long enough that she her body adapted to it and she, yeah, yeah. she felt very energized by it um i think she did break from her diet near the end of the trip and and stole like a whole box of my mac and cheese um, just <laughs> a bit of a cheater time but she pretty yeah. much stuck to it the whole way so yeah uh here's a here's a question and uh is it kind of a two-parter because first i just need to ask and i'm, I'm sure you are but uh are you familiar with the story of the terror uh the british expedition to discover the northern pass over north america yeah i i actually tried to row the northwest passage uh 2013 we got stopped by ice pretty much where the terror went down so um, oh, wow. very okay. with it. yeah and know. i guess the second part of that question does not even need to be asked because i was going to ask you <laughs> had you had you been alive in that time period would you have uh, been one of the people that would have thought that was a good idea to go through the northern oh, for pass? sure but it turns, turns out yeah. you tried to <laughs> in a, in a, a robot one man craft <laughs> rowing so yes yes if you go to my youtube channel the movie about that one's called the hand of franklin and franklin was the captain of the erebus one of the two chip the the erebus yeah. and the terror basically he was leading the expedition but our, our story is called the hand of franklin so uh you can you can get the modern sense of that area if you'll check that out <laughs> franklin was the one that according to supernatural mythology he was killed by a some some kind of uh it, it was an Inuit uh, demon type creature that I can't recall hmm. the name of. Do you, do you know about this? The only one I like the, like the demon, and there's definitely lots of demons in mythology, but I mean, the Wendigo is, is the demon. It's more of like a boreal uh, demon of the Cree and stuff like that. But, uh, and that, that would, that kind of takes men in the night kind of thing. Yeah, the Wendigo. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. The Wendigo. And then, and then uh, I'm sure the Inuit have their own version of that too. Right? Yeah. I think that's, it was, it was something of that. I mean, I'm not sitting here claiming that that is what happened to the captain of that ship, but uh, as in, I'm according, sure according to some to <laughs> according to some legend, that's what yeah. happened. Is the Wendigo took him because yeah. he was the fir- he was the first one to go, I think. The, and the other and it it all fell on the the other captain who was kind of a, a lesser, not necessarily lesser, but a less respected captain, and he had less yeah. command of the sailors. Well, basically, no one really knows what happened to them because they all died. Wendigo and, got uh, off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I did another trip in 2019 and we skied the route of this guy, John Ray. And he's actually the guy who discovered. So he, in 1854, he skied from Hudson Bay overland up to the Northwest Passage. And he ran into a bunch of Inuit who had, um, John Ray did, who told stories of, of this guy. At, at that point, they didn't know Franklin was dead, hadn't been confirmed. And they said, oh, yeah, we found all these you know, you know, human body parts and pots and this sort of thing. They'd been eating each other in their starved kind of state. And they actually had, a, you know, pipes and implements that had like terror and Erebus monogrammed in them. So they actually proved that they had seen these guys. I mean, the ship had been long scuttled by the ice, but uh, John Ray was the first guy to actually confirm that. And when he brought that news back to England in 1854, he was actually completely eviscerated in society. Um, 
Charles Dickens was a high member of society and he wrote a big op-ed against this guy, John Ray, uh, disparaging because they refused to believe that any member of the British military would resort to cannibalism. So this whole story that John Ray just brought back as a fact based on evidence, it was actually, you know, buried and swept under the rug. And John Ray was basically, you know, uh, a, a no uh, persona non grata in, in British society after that um, because That's, of that whole thing. So, but well, uh, it was, yeah. So we basically followed the same route, brutal cold temperatures. My feet went totally sour on that trip. So I can't imagine some guy in 1854 doing that or Franklin and his crew surviving these long winters in like minus 40 and 50, you know, yeah. waiting for the ice to go through. I mean, those, those guys, you know, there are no planes. There's nowhere to get to them. They were just screwed and hoping for the best. And they, they, all, they, all they went were sideways, locked yeah. in the ice for years. I yeah, mean, for sure. As they yeah. slowly, yeah, that was a depressing question. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but, but the I'm next one, familiar this one, anyways with it. Yeah, sorry. this one yeah. I think is very important, and uh, and I think I would love to hear your take on this uh, for being someone that who is extremely experienced and uh, and skilled. And so from your from, from your point of view, I think this is a great place to hear it from instead of maybe from someone who's just saying like, "Hey, get outside and you know see nature." You know, I think, and it's also H- about it's about conservation. <laughs> it's about conservation. I think it's about this is this is something uh, a, a belief I have. It's a theory. Right. Maybe it might not be the most important thing, obviously there's, you know, uh, regulation on industry would be more important, but you know, it, it also, it's got to start somewhere. And I think that yeah. one of the steps to conservation of wildlife and land is to get more people to get out and experience the wilderness and have a greater understanding of what we're losing. And I think, uh, from you, what is some advice that you would give people that don't have wilderness survival skills and they're amateurs but for them to get out into nature and have a meaningful experience, something that would help for them, you know, help them to have the appreciation necessary to know why we need to put regulations on uh, different types of industry and things like that to protect the wildlife and protect the rivers, you know? Yeah. I, mean, I think um, like my approach to my journeys is, is, is keep it very simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't need a whole lot of gear to get out and appreciate nature. Like, uh, I basically like all my trips, be it like, you know, you know, 30, 60, hundred days, whatever. It's just really, if you think about it, it's just a weekend trip with a bit more food. You're using the same gear. It's the same tent. It's the same canoe. Uh, it's the same kind of packs and, and kind of basic, you know, clothing you bring along. All you're doing is, uh, figuring out how to do the food. You're picking it up along the way or supplementing or whatever. Right. So it's, it's really simple that way. I think also to get a really meaningful experience. I don't think if you go car camping and stuff like that, that's the way to go. Uh, I always like to say like the journey begins at the end of the road. If you can just get somewhere, you don't have to go very far. You need to walk a few hours, but just, you know, walk under your own power, you know, on a hiking trail that takes you, you know, past the crowds. Cause most people don't, they won't go very far. Like in, in canoeing, most people won't go, you know, past that first canoe carry to the next lake and they're going to stop there. And that's, you go a couple extra carries in, you know, it's not complicated. It gives you a bit more, maybe takes a bit more time, but you'll get to those places that we really experience kind of true nature and it doesn't take very long to get that. Just think about an end of the road place. Even if it's like a trail that takes you, you know, a few hours up, you can pretty quickly get away. If, if you get away from where all the kind of the motorized transport gets you, then you're really going to experience that in, in a really easy way. And it doesn't take very long. It doesn't take a lot of resources. doesn't take a lot of gear or experience. I mean, all you're doing is you're, you're living, you're breathing, you're eating, you have a shelter, which is your tent. You have a little stove you can cook on just like at home or, or over fire um and you have a you have sleeping bag you even take a blanket it'll all work i mean nature is 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 where we're meant to be and it's, it doesn't 
Yeah, yeah, I think almost the simpler you make it, the easier it is, and it, and it doesn't take long to get into it. All right, I think uh, to summarize, we could say, obviously, simplicity and mm-hmm. go the extra mile that it takes to get past the crowds so that you really are, you know, you're not just in a, in a big-ass crowded campsite because that's not quite... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's that's crowded campsite. It's, it's still nice to be outside and stuff like that, for sure. Um, and for a quick weekend getaway or just a base camp at a climbing area and that sort of thing, it's good. But if you want a more of a real wilderness experience, you got to, you know, uh, take a bit more time to get, uh, it, it takes a, you know, nothing worthwhile, I think is easy. And so putting a little bit of effort, even for a weekend trip is definitely going to give you a better experience for sure. Oh, yeah. And, I'm, and I, maybe I want to uh, take a step back and say, I'm not trying to disparage just recreational camping in a, in a no, regular no, crowded sure. park. Yeah. That's, that's very fun. It's really fun, especially if you like, you can cook out and, you know, yeah. and you can always. But you, get back. you were talking more about more of a real wilderness experience, right? So yeah, that's what I was yeah. trying to say. Yeah, yeah, so, for sure. So, uh, like, yeah, no, I wasn't disparaging the recreational thing, but I was also trying to say that why not take a little bit of extra effort yeah. and exactly maybe, and, and, maybe a little bit and, more discomfort, you know? Yeah, and it's it's totally fun to go with a group of friends to like a you know a a, a car camping area, or whatever. It's a great time, and, and there's it's always a hoot to have a few beers and, and kind of recreate in the area and that sort of thing. And that's, it's a different kind of fun though, in terms of like getting out there and kind of tapping into that kind of, you know, that, that kind of deeper, you know, wildness in yourself uh, and that kind of calm and quiet, I think uh, getting, you know, away from that is, is definitely a worthwhile. Absolutely. Oh, and Frank, man, I have to ask you the most important question of all, uh, where can people, find you where can they find your book where can they check out your movies and do you want to give any shout outs like maybe to your sponsors or uh any of your sure. uh, co-explorers yeah for sure um yeah my like sponsors i have right now is skeef is a canoe company that, that give me canoes for years uh coquitat water sportswear they're out of california they hooked me up with my my paddle wear dry suits all that sort of stuff um MSR as well, uh, Sea Line, uh, yeah, lots of Warner Paddles, uh, uh, Seal Spray Skirts, so a bunch of different uh, companies that helped me out over the years. Arcteryx as well for my winter stuff. And um, uh, as far as uh, where I can be found, Instagram is like at Frank Wolf seventy. Um, it's uh, YouTube is just Frank Wolf. Find me on YouTube. Um, there's also, yeah, I should be able to come up. Frank Wolf Adventure. Super simple. Like just Frank Wolf. Yeah. That's dope. Yeah, exactly. And then. Uh, How'd you beat everyone else named Frank Wolf to that? <laughs> yeah, it seems to work for me. It's probably just Google like uh, the algorithm. So you might have to dig a bit. Put it like Frank Wolf Canoe and you'll find it, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. That'll, that'll get in the, in the search engine. And um, yeah, in terms of like, uh, yeah, fellow adventurers, friends and people. I mean, two, two great people. The one thing about doing these journeys with someone, if you're doing a trip, whoever it is you're doing this trip with, especially a long journey, it's, it's, it basically becomes like a bond for life. It's something that you, two or three or four people have that only you can understand. And you've been through this very unique experience traveling through, you know, a wilderness in, in a ways people, very few people have, if at all, right? So, yeah, all, all, the, all the amazing friends and people I've done trips with recently is um, like Amber Blencaron, Dave Beresford, Shauna Leora. Um, Taku Hokoyama, um, you know, Rob Hart, Sean Campbell, the list goes on and on. Todd McGowan. I've gone through a lot of partners over the years. It's interesting that I've been doing this for so long that um, I keep, you know, uh, I, I keep going on year after year after year, but, but people's, you know, lives change. People have families, they move, they change their priorities, they get more serious jobs and they can't go on these journeys with me anymore. So I'm always, 
you know, uh, often, especially during the pandemic, it's been, I've had so many people drop out of me and having to scramble deep into the recesses of the outdoor world and people who I think can do it to get these trips. So I've got like a list of people that I can kind of go down and, and, uh, and eventually someone will say yes kind of thing. Right. So that's all part of the challenge. But once you've done the trip, you know, this person intimately in a way, you know, probably their, their wives or husbands don't even know as well. So it's like, uh, it's a unique experience that kind of bonds you for life and it's very special. So I always like to do trips with people. I don't do solos. Usually I like that interactivity. It's better for filming and photography. I find too, it's better for the story and, and, and uh, all that sort of thing. So I, I like that kind of combination. So shout out to anyone who's ever done a trip with me, you know, in the last 25, 30 years. So. <laughs> right. uh, Frank, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Well, thanks for having me, man. It's uh, great to chat with you and, uh, and hopefully people can uh, check out the book lines in a map, amazon.com. You can find it there or in a lot of bookstores and that sort of thing. You can order from your local independent bookstore, which I'd like to encourage people to do to support those local independent bookstores they can get any book you want in there for sure it's worth the effort um but yeah, yeah hopefully I, people enjoy I, it it's yeah. a comp yeah it's I, a compilation of like 25 different stories uh mostly them uh, i'm a regular feature writer for explore and have written for years and so a lot of them 16 of the 24 stories are previously published in various uh, magazines but there's eight new ones in there too to kind of fill it out so it's a good variety of adventure stuff from skiing to canoeing to um kayaking uh biking rowing all the different kind of modes of transportation in north america as well as in asia and europe too so yeah i just wanted i wanted to back you up on that if if it is uh if you have the opportunity to get it from an independent bookstore do that that be, should be your first choice for sure yes. for sure or that's yeah. just my opinion yeah no <laughs> i agree i agree i agree that's it's great to support the independent bookstores so. thanks for listening to my views of my own Today's outro song is Friends of the Show, Lovercraft, performing their version of Teardrop by Massive Attack. If you want to contact me, go to myviewsmyown.com or myviewsarmyown underscore podcast on Instagram or myviews underscore podcast on Twitter. Thanks. <laughs>